Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the podcast. I am, as always, your host, Josh Belfer. Happy to be coming back to you after a one-week hiatus. You know, when I started this podcast, there were a couple different types of people I was hoping to have on. I wanted to have physician entrepreneurs, people who were building companies, building businesses, either medical-related or not medical-related, from the ground up. I thought that this is a really interesting aspect and something different from just studying medicine and practicing it clinically. I was hoping to have physicians who are active in social media. More and more physicians have become involved in TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, not only to teach the world medicine, but also to highlight their personalities. And that's a key aspect to recognizing how doctors are people too. I was also hoping in the back of my mind, and I think my friends would tell you, it was probably a little bit more than the back of my mind, having a reality TV star on. I grew up watching some reality TV, I will admit, and now there's so many physicians on reality TV shows, whether those are TV shows about medicine, things like Botched, Lennox Hill, or even physicians who are taking part in other reality TV shows. And who would have believed that our guest today checks all of those boxes. Dr. Tiffany Moon is an associate professor of anesthesiology and pain management at UT Southwestern Medical Center. She's passionate about medical education. She's embraced TikTok and has developed a following of millions of TikTok fans. And she's an entrepreneur. She's built several companies from the ground up over the last 10 years. And she's a reality TV star. You may have seen her on Bravo TV's Real Housewives of Dallas. That's right. She was a real housewife. Could you believe it? We had a great conversation about all of her endeavors. She's a fascinating personality, passionate about the things that she does, and she really provided some unique perspectives on her experience through COVID and the experience of becoming an entrepreneur and a social media star. Enjoy our chat. Dr. Tiffany Moon, welcome to the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me here. I think we'll have a good time. I like to start all of our conversations here with this question. What is your typical morning routine? Oh, gosh, that depends on what day it is. Let's pretend it's a day that I'm working clinically. I wake up at 530, um, have my coffee, and basically scramble out the door by 6 because I'm in the OR setting up for my case at 630. (laughs) Then it's go, 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 um, taking care of patients, seeing their families, doing pre-ops, going to sleep, waking up, all those things. And then I get home from work at about 4 or 5. That early morning life of an anesthesiologist. And that's kind of where I wanted to start in in terms of your medical career. So let's start with your early journey. You know, graduating college at 19, graduating medical school at 23, top of your class, no less. Can you walk us through your journey to medicine? Did you know you wanted to do medicine as you were growing up? Did you have influences in your life that led you to the field of medicine? Yeah, um, I always loved math and science. I am a huge nerd at heart, and I mean that, you know, in the nicest way possible. I just love learning. I'm always curious. Um, you know, English and history, not so much. Math and science, yes. And so that naturally led me um, toward a career in medicine. Um, and, you know, I have uh, typical Asian parents that basically told me I could be a doctor or a lawyer. And I, <laughs> you know, didn't like reading history books. So I was like, 
doctor it is. And what was it about anesthesia that attracted you to that field? Oh, when I, um, this is funny, when I was moving houses a few years ago, I found all these papers, like, you know, paper papers, not on um, the computer. And I found the essay I had written to get into medical school. And I wrote on there that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon because I had shadowed one when I was in high school. And I, I mean, you know, people make that joke like, oh gosh, don't make such a big deal. It's not brain surgery. And I always wanted to be like, actually, I, it is brain surgery. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. During medical school, I started um, shadowing surgeons in the operating room. I had no idea what an anesthesiologist was first year of medical school. I just figured they put the patient to sleep, turn some little knobs, maybe do a crossword puzzle or two, and that was it. But then one day, the surgeon um, was like, you know, why don't you scrub out? There's not a whole lot going on. And so I went, you know, up to the top of the bed to hang out with the anesthesiologist. And as luck would have it, he was like the nicest human being, um, was like, do you know what these drugs are? Do you know what these drugs are? What do you think is keeping the patient asleep right now? And I was like, oh my God, I never thought of that. Like, it just thought about patients having surgery, but never thought about like, what is keeping the patient asleep right now? Um, and that's how I found anesthesia. And I, I tell people, it's like when you find your spouse and you just know, like there is just a feeling in the bottom of your heart that you're like, this is it for me. It's a great story. I think when I, when I think about anesthesia, you know, certainly we've talked a lot about it in this podcast and previous episodes about the rigors of medical education and training. When I think about anesthesia, and I have some close friends that are anesthesiologists, I think that's probably one of the fields that, you know, has the biggest learning curve. You enter the OR and certainly levels of graduated autonomy. But my friend, for example, you know, when I met with him in the middle of his first year of training, he's worried about sort of the more routine cases. And then flash forward two years later, and he's worried about, you know, the biggest cardiac cases that he's doing. I think it's that big, quick level of uh, incline, especially in anesthesia. Was that your experience as well? Yes, I think you are spot on with your observation. There is a very steep learning curve, um, I think more so than other med medical specialties, especially ones that are more office-based where you're more talking and prescribing rather than doing. I also think that, you know, in anesthesia, a, a small mistake or within the matter of a few minutes, you could potentially do something catastrophic to um, hurt someone um, or actually save their life. And so um, I always tell people that anesthesia tends to be better suited for people who think fast on their feet. Like if you need a few hours to, you know, go home and chew on the differential diagnosis and sort of, you know, uh, you know, ruminate about things like anesthesia is not the field for you. As a pediatric emergency medicine doctor, I think I fall into that category also, making quick decisions in the heat of the moment, just like you. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about a little bit about COVID. You know, we're two years out from really the, the beginning of the pandemic, and anesthesia, I think, was one of those fields that was particularly you know, significantly impacted. Certainly at the beginning, throughout the pandemic, a lot of patients needing breathing tubes to be intubated, and especially at the beginning when there was the concern from my colleagues in the emergency medicine department about intubating those patients with COVID, it really fell to you as an anesthesiologist. As you look back over the last two years of your experience working through COVID, you know, what comes to mind in terms of your reflections? Oh gosh, this is such a good question because um, how soon we forget how we felt 
before. And, and now that maybe the end of the COVID marathon, as I call it, is here, I forget how bad it was in March of 2020. Um, I was working full time as an anesthesiologist. You know, we were told to wear N95s and another mask over that for known COVID cases that were in respiratory distress and needed to be intubated. We would put on a PAPR device, you know, with this whole hood and a self-contained um, hose in the back. And, and I was, I have anxiety at baseline. I mean, I'm medicated for it. I see a psychiatrist. I'm just an anxious person. Um, when COVID hit, my anxiety went through the roof. And there were nights that I would just sit and worry and cry myself to sleep and think about like the fate of the world. And then I would get so anxious because I knew that I was, you know, basically down the respiratory tract of someone. And I was like, what if I get COVID? I get sick. What if I get COVID and give it to my kids, give it to my husband? Husband, my father is immunocompromised. And I just would sit there and worry and worry. And it was so bad. And I felt so isolated. Um, not to mention that my workplace was not exactly the most supportive of us, me in particular, um, during that time. And I just remember feeling so, so alone and so, so scared during that time. Yeah, I think two things stand out to me in the answer you just gave, certainly the uncertainty of it. And, you know, in medicine, there's always a level of uncertainty, but we're striving to really understand it all, especially, you know, in anesthesia, in the emergency room, we're really thinking about the physiology and the pathophysiology. When it came to COVID, it was something that we were adapting to and sort of drawing on lessons from previous illnesses and, and sicknesses we've dealt with, but certainly the uncertainty of it. And then I think what you started with, the fact that we've kind of moved on pretty quickly in terms of the emotions that we all went through. And I was just talking to, to someone about this the other day, and certainly the people that we lost, we need to recognize them and the families that had devastating losses. And then for those of us in the medical field, like you're describing, who had these traumatic experiences and doctors can put up with a lot, but this was something over the last two years, I think that people weren't expecting, obviously, and, you know, prepared for. How do you think we, we move forward, you know, as doctors from this? And certainly we're, we're still treating patients, we're moving on by going to work every day, but how do you digest what happened over the last couple of years with your colleagues, with, with other people within the world of medicine? Gosh, um, I mean, I think the first thing is just being able to talk about it with like-minded individuals and, and saying like, how did you feel? Have you processed those emotions? Like sometimes I think maybe I have a little bit of PTSD from all that happened. You know, I never missed a single day of work during COVID. I was like, rah, rah, healthcare heroes, you know, we're on the front lines. And I took that obligation and duty very seriously. And then, you know, after a few months of rah, rah, healthcare heroes, it kind of like the tides turned. And, and then all of a sudden, we're still doing the same work. But I feel like not getting the same recognition. And look, you know, I never went into medicine um, and anesthesia in particular to you know, get a nice pat on the back every day. It's just not that kind of specialty. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I would be lying if I said that I wasn't a little bit bitter about the way things have turned out. Just the lack of support of my 
institution and and sort of, you know, you get these emails that are like, rah, rah, go doctor's day. Thanks for all that you do coming from someone who I'm like, and you sitting in your ivory tower who, you know, hasn't knowingly gone into the room of a COVID positive patient with like a pound of protective gear on sweating your butt off to go and help that person. I don't know. It just seems a little disingenuous to me. And and I don't know how to fix that, but I have a little bitter taste in my mouth about it. And there's no good way to shift off of COVID, but well, I'll shift by asking you this. I know that you have a number of other interests within your, your the medical world. You know, teaching, I've heard you speak about in terms of teaching residents and, and medical students. Can you talk about some of your other academic interests within medicine? Yes. One of the reasons that I am in academic medicine, this is my 10th year on faculty, um, is because I absolutely love teaching and mentoring medical students and residents. I remember when I was a medical student and resident, like the people that I looked up to, and I I said, you know, when when I grow up, I want to be like one of those people. Because medical school and residency are so hard. And just for someone to be nice to you and get to know you as a person and throw you a bone and say, you know, take an extra 15 minutes on your lunch break and just do whatever. Like, it just goes such a long way. And and our young people are so bright and eager to help. And, you know, they're having a hard time too. They're trying to date during COVID and some of them have young children. Like, people are going through it. And I just, I love getting to know the medical students and residents. Match day was not long ago. I got phone calls from all my kids. I call them my kids, um, you know, saying, Dr. Moon, I matched at XYZ. That was my number one. And it just makes me so, so happy. Um, The other thing that I love doing is clinical research. I have a number of clinical trials going on. One of them, which is um, very unique. And then I had to get it cleared by the FDA because we're using a uh, drug off-label um, for the study. And um, I just love, you know, education, mentoring, investigation. I'm a curious person. Um, And of course, I love doing anesthesia, but I don't need to be in academics to do anesthesia. But I do need to see in academics if I want to have interactions with, you know, medical students and residents. And honestly, that's one of the primary reasons I continue to stay in academia. Let's uh, shift off of medicine. Should we talk a little Real Housewives for a few minutes? You, uh, sure. <laughs> you were uh, a star on season five, Real Housewives of Dallas. How did that opportunity come about? We'll get into some of your entrepreneurial activities. I think from what we've talked about thus far, people recognize you're extremely busy, even just within the medical world. So, so how did that opportunity come about with Real Housewives? Um, the opportunity came about because a close friend of mine had been on the show for a number of seasons, and they always ask the current cast members, do you have friends that you think would make for a good housewife and can you introduce them, right? It's like a sorority. You're always recruiting. <laughs> and uh, so, of course, she asked me about it actually two or three years before the year that I actually joined. And I was always like, no, no, I have young kids at home. I'm a professor at the university. How would anyone take me seriously? if I added Real Housewives to my CV. Like, no, 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 no. Um, And then, you know, things at work weren't as peachy as I kind of saw them. And um, I was sort of having what I call my midlife crisis. And I was like, you know what? How often is it that Bravo TV knocks on your door and asks you to be on a nationally televised show? Um, And I was like, what the heck? I'll do it. (laughs) So I did. (laughs) And we all know how that turned out. 
<laughs> looking back at your experience with it, you know, certainly you had an idea of a little bit of an idea of what you're getting yourself into. But how do you look back at, at your year, you know, on the show thus far? I thought that I was joining a show that would be fun and fluffy, right? It's reality TV. It's uh, people watch it to escape their life. Um, I was told that we would, you know, have fancy red carpet events, and we would go on an international trip that was part of the deal. And all of this I signed on for before COVID happened. And so then COVID happened, we did not get a nice trip. We drove in an RV to Oklahoma to go Bigfoot hunting. There were no red carpet events, no galas. And I was like, man, I got gypped. Like I signed on, I should have signed on the year before or something because this season sucks. Not to mention that a few of my co-workers on the show were less than nice to me from the very beginning. It was just like I they they hated me from the beginning. They did not want me to be part of the group. It honestly felt like I was walking onto the set of Mean Girls. And I was like, man, I know what it's like to be, you know, not the cool girl and excluded because that was basically my entire life, like middle school, high school. I was always, you know, at the nerd table, never at the cool girls table. And it's like, my friend Deandra asked me to come sit with her at the cool girls table and the rest of the girls or some of the other girls at the table were just not having it. And that was very evident from the minute we started filming. I'm interested a little bit more in you know some of the reservations you voiced. We spoke with uh, on a previous episode, Dr. Oren Gottfried, who does a lot of consulting for medical TV shows. And, and we spoke about how physicians are represented on TV in the reality show setting. One of the things he said is that his work on television has sort of opened up the connection with his patients because they're able to, you know, speak with him about his extracurricular activities, for lack of a better word. How do you think your experience has impacted your your patient communication, your patient relationships? I imagine some of your patients, they, they feel like they know you from television. Yeah. Um, most of my patients are underserved because I work at Dallas County's hospital. So um, by and large, they don't have insurance and many of them don't speak English. So um, I, I don't think that they're the kind of people who are watching um, Real Housewives. I have been recognized at work a few times by patients, but not that many, more so by like nurses and other doctors. Um, and, and it kind of falls into two categories. Some patients, I've had, I've had people call the UT South Western anesthesia line, like the general number, and ask to have me as their anesthesiologist because they were booked to have surgery XYZ and, and ask for me, um, which I was incredibly flattered um, that that happened. Um, then I have, you know, the DMs or the comments on certain posts on social media that's like, oh my gosh, like I would never want you to be my doctor. You know, I hope that XYZ. And I'm just like, whatever. I mean, okay, then that's your prerogative. I guess if you don't want me to take care of you simply because, you know, I was on TV for four weeks or four months. Um, it's weird. And when I got the opportunity to do the show before I signed the contract, I kind of called several of my mentors and said, you know, look, this is a weird thing, but I got offered a seat on the Real Housewives of Dallas. It's this show where, you know, middle-aged women kind of act goofy and take trips and whatever, you know, it's like a fun, fluffy show. Um, should I do it? 
And some of them were like, sure, why not? You've been a good girl your whole life. Like, do it for yourself. Have a little fun. You know, live your best life. And then there were a couple of my mentors that was like, do not do it. It will be absolute career suicide. You are a oral board examiner for the American Board of Anesthesiologists. That is not like something like you know, that's a, that's a hefty role to be in. You publish papers, you mentor residents and medical students. How can you mentor residents and medical students if you're on some fluffy reality TV show? And I was like, but I don't, I'm not seeing where you're making that connection because on TV, I was exactly who I am in real life. Maybe, you know, the slightly amped up version, but I was very authentic. I was vulnerable with my work-life balance, the guilt that I feel about being away from my kids all the time, the issues that I have with my own mother. And I think in some ways, after people watched that, they were like, oh, I, I understand this girl. Like, I would want her to take care of me. So it goes both ways. I think the authenticity is key, like you said, that it may be souped up a little bit for rea it is reality television. But if you were staying true to yourself, I imagine that at the end of the day, you know, that's what you could feel comfortable with. We'll be back next week with the second part of my discussion with Dr. Moon. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to Dr. Moon's social media pages and also for a promotional code that will give you a discount on Dr. Moon's Aromasthesia candles. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Take care.